this is the Stand Alone Podcast. If you know deep down that it's the right thing for you to do, you have to stay the course. You have to push through like all the people telling you that it's wrong, all the people telling you that you've ruined your life. You haven't. Trust that you're doing the right thing. It is the worst thing and it will be the worst thing that you ever do. My name's Jay. And I'm producing this podcast series for Standalone UK, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. I think it's so wonderful that people are actually acknowledging that it's a thing. They're doing really important work. What I would hope to happen in the future is that more people understand it and that it's not such a taboo thing with a stigma attached to it and that the concept of what family means changes and evolves. Across these episodes, 10 participants who have very kindly offered to share their experiences of family estrangement. If you can find people to support you because those people are there and sometimes people that you don't really expect like it could be your boss it could be it could be that person that sometimes talks to you when you're at work like the support is there just ask for it and you'll be surprised how much people do want to help you most of the episodes in this podcast series focus on a single story either someone who was disconnected by their family members or, like in today's episode, someone who felt the need to cut off those ties. Some people, they look at me with this look. I can never decide if it's pity. And they say, oh, you're so brave. I'm like, I, I just want to punch them. It's not, it's not brave. I made a decision to do something. No two experiences of estrangement are the same. But hopefully throughout this podcast series, you'll hear useful ideas to take away, whether they're similar journeys or contrasting opinions. Sometimes families aren't everything they're cracked up to be, and you've got to kind of decide what you want your family to be. It will still be crap. Like, it still will be. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't get better immediately, but it does eventually. That I know. Most of the episodes you'll hear in this series are recorded out of order, but today we're starting with the very first person that I called. Today's episode focuses on the journey of Natasha. Hello. Hello. Hi, Jay. It's Natasha. Hi, Natasha. Sorry about that. I was just turning off uh, off my heater in this room. Sorry. Oh no. So was so was I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working from home, but my kind of the spare room study slash my office gets quite cold. And I was like, I'll put the little space heater on. My partner doesn't need to know. <laughs> I, I relate to you so much at this moment. It is <laughs> freezing. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you hear me? I've, I've got my proper like microphone thing. So hopefully I should be clear for the sake of the recording and stuff. It's really clear, like super clear. <laughs> A shopping delivery may arrive, so if I have to dash off because of that, it will be that will be the reason. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> That's okay. So mundane, isn't it? Like, yes, doing the first <laughs> thing. But please let me check on my shopping. We all have lives. <laughs> I am thirty-two. I have been estranged from my parents, my family, I guess for about five years now. I'm a user researcher. 
forgive me for being completely naive, but a user researcher. Yes. I've not heard of that before. Sorry. In the most technical terms, doing user research is about understanding how people, users, interact with a specific service or product and understanding why they like it, why they don't like it, and taking that feedback and improving it. They will have sat down and they would have sat with people to understand how they navigate certain things, how they interact with different things to make it the most optimum experience for that person. Person. It's a very people-oriented job and understanding what people need and how people think. And what's really interesting is that my experiences over the last few years have made me more empathetic, which has made me almost a better user researcher, I think. I think my experiences made me better at my job. We'll be hearing more about Natasha's experience with estrangement as she shares her journey with us. But I thought this was a really interesting point right at the start of our discussion. So I pose this idea to Standalone UK's founder and CEO, Becca Bland. You'll hear Becca Bland's voice across these episodes. Yeah, I think that any kind of adverse experience in our lives can really help us to grow and develop as human beings. And I'm going to refer now to an author called Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a mindfulness guru. I love his writings, which often are about that if you don't have mud, you don't have lotus. If you don't go through things in your life, you won't be able to grow into quite the human being that you might want to be. And that if you exist in isolation without any sense of challenge, then it isn't going to help you to become stronger and more able to cope with other things in life. And I think there's something very basic about development of empathy is that if you've grown up around people where you've needed to be very sensitive from an early age, then it does help you to really develop that sense of empathy and understanding. And I think there's a want to be empathic. There's a want to bond. There's a want to understand. And Natasha's not alone in this. This want to be empathic was a driver for Yasmin, for instance, who is featured in one of the later episodes in this series. Yasmin grew up as a cultural outsider, and she reflected on her own relationship with her family and with estrangement, and about how that connected with her work as an immigration and asylum lawyer. I wonder sometimes if, had I not been through the experiences I have been through, whether I would have been a bit more judgmental about some of my clients' experiences. I hope that I've been able to bring something to my profession and, and my role of caring for my clients because I can relate to where they come from when it comes to issues of family estrangement. It helps you to put yourself in their shoes and understand things more clearly from their perspective. And you said that in order to be a good user researcher, you would need to have empathetic qualities. Yeah, I think so. Like all the people on my team that do it, there's a certain level of understanding and putting the human at the heart of everything that we do. So it's not just you create something and people have to use it, but you create it the other way around. It's like, okay, we have this person that we need to design something for. How can we create something that not just that they want to use, but they're going to be able to use? But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of just sitting and listening. I should have said that, actually, not just empathy, but listening, just sitting and listening. That's my job here as well, sitting and listening. <laughs> so 
I wanted to ask Natasha more about her journey from the beginning. So my family, my parents, on the surface, they did everything right. Like they sent me to really good schools when it came to the harder stuff, you know, like the emotional support and the understanding me as a person and all of that sort of thing. That stuff they weren't so good at. I'm an only child and I'm an ethnic minority as well. And I'm a first generation. So my family came over in the late 70s, early 80s. And they were very, they were very traditional. I mean, I was a constant source of disappointment because, especially to my mum, because I wasn't a boy. Um, I heard a lot of that when I was growing up. My dad, who... I still miss him a lot, actually. I think he basically treated me like I was a boy. Like I wasn't allowed to play football or whatever because only boys can play football. But like he taught me like we would build furniture together and he taught me how to rewire a plug and all of this sort of thing. Yeah, very strange dichotomy there, I would say. And the older I got, the more I wasn't right. Like I just wasn't right for my family. Like I wasn't feminine enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't smart enough. Any adjective, like I just wasn't enough. And then the older I got, the more controlling my parents got. There's so many occasions where like I would push back and then it would be awful and then it'd be fine. And then we'd go back to the status quo. I must have been 27, right? And I'd just broken up with my then boyfriend who my parents approved of because he was white and rich. So they were happy. (laughs) Um, But then I realized he wasn't right for me. So I broke up with him and my parents were so upset. They weren't upset for me. Like, I guess they were because at the end of the day, I'm still their child, but they were more upset that I wasn't with someone. And just to give you an idea of the cultural things, So I have a funny shaped womb. So for anyone out there, I have a bicornate womb, which basically means it's heart shaped. And it means that I almost have two wombs. And it means that having children would be very, very, very difficult for me. And I don't know if it's genetic, like it's a very small percentage of women that have it. And I remember when I had my first ever ultrasound and the doctor brought in like all her medical students and they were like, ah, look at this bicornate womb. Ah." And I remember thinking, oh, okay, so great to be a medical anomaly. Love this. For my parents, when I told them, I was like, I don't think I'm going to want to have children if that's the case. And my parents said, well, as long as you have one, it's fine. Doesn't matter about you, but just have one, it's fine. And I just remember like, you have those moments in your head and I was like, oh, in the grand scheme of things, I actually, I actually don't matter to them. I just genuinely don't matter. And that whole period had got really weird because I was still living with my family at the time, like given cultural things and stuff, they just were not happy with me living on my own or living with friends or whatever. Their aim was for me to live with them until I got married and they got really controlling. So my dad would drop me off at the gym on a Saturday morning. And if I stayed behind to chat to some of the other women, 
my dad would be like who are you talking to why were you talking to them who are these people and all this sort of thing and it got it got really weird and the thing is my mum ever since I was 11 it would just be a lot of verbal abuse from her all the stuff I've said like not not being enough there would just be a lot of that being ugly being not being a boy I would I would get a lot of that and then what happened is that I I remember it really clearly there was one argument and my mum called me a whore because she said oh you just want to go out every weekend and who knows what you're doing or who you're doing it with and I was studying part-time at the time so I was getting up at 4 30 studying going to work coming home going to the gym and I was genuinely thinking when when am I whoring around? Like, I wish I could whore around. Like, where is all this free time that I'm supposed to be having to do this stuff? And my parents were like, no, no, you're 27. You're too close to being 30. After you're 30, who's going to want to be with you or marry you? You're already so difficult as a person. And my mum has already said that to me my whole life. Like, she said that I'm too argumentative. Like, no man would ever want me. I'd be lucky if anyone would put up with me, that type of thing. And again, it was one of those other moments where my heart, it just completely broke. I was like, imagine being told that. And I was like, I'm 27, I'm not. And there's also that assumption that I even wanted to get married because I don't know, like I'm I'm still on the fence about that. They actually found someone. My mum's logic was, um, oh, he's got a PhD and he's written a book. And you really like books, so it will be a really good match. I just remember thinking, wow, you just don't know me at all. And because of culture and because of tradition and because of saving face, it was more important for me to be seen to be with someone. And I said, would you rather I were married and unhappy or unmarried but happy and thriving and my parents are like well to be honest as long as you're married it doesn't really matter I try to do all the things that you're supposed to do like I try to meet them halfway I try to compromise and my dad was like no you know you can't tell a lot from pictures so you have to go and meet him and I overheard all these phone calls where it sounded like lots of things had been agreed already and it was just a case of me having to go and meet this person and then it seemed like that would be that I didn't know what to do I had really bad anxiety like I couldn't sleep I didn't eat for like four or five days I I lost a lot of weight in a week um the thing is I was really lucky in the sense that I had been saving up money. So I had a couple of grand saved up. I'd been saving up for a car, if you can believe it. Not that my parents were ever going to let me buy a car, but that was that was my aim. And I just remember one day that I, re- I realised it was never going to change. My parents were like, you have to go and meet him. You're a terrible person if you don't go and meet him. Like, what are you going to do with your life? I actually called the police and I went back one night and I called a friend, packed up some stuff and I went to stay with her. A couple of weeks later, I went back 
and I'd found somewhere to live, put down a deposit. Um, my one recommendation is always put money aside, like always have at least some money put aside. And I went back to get as many of my things as I could get. And I saw my dad and my dad said, you're making a big mistake. And I said, you know why I'm doing this. And um, he had nothing to say. And then for the next two and a half years, my mum would leave me horrible messages on my phone. Things like, you're a snake, you brought shame on the family, no one's ever going to want you. And then more things like, you're a whore. And yeah, and then I'm here now, I guess. The hardest thing is, is that I still miss my dad. And there will always, I don't think it goes away. I don't know how it is for anyone else, but there will always be a bit of me that wonders if I could have done something, if I could have done something different, maybe the outcome would have been different. Like maybe if I were better in some way, but but then the flip side of that is, and this is this is the worst bit, my life without them in it is better. Isn't that awful? Like I'm better as a person. Again, I don't know how it is for other people, but when you go through something like this, you lose a lot of friends. I lost so many friends because they didn't understand or they thought I was doing something for the sake of doing it. I, I, I don't know, but like I lost so, so, so many friends. And the friends that I have now who, like I said, have seen me on both sides, even they've commented on how much happier I am and I'm also a bit kinder as well. It's it's a really funny, it's a really funny thing. Like I'm a lot kinder, but I'm also a lot less tolerant of certain things. Like if I come across certain situations and there are just certain triggers, I literally, my brain will just shut off and I will just, I won't be able to deal with it. And that is something that I still have to deal with. And I'm working through it. Like it gets better. Like each year it gets better and better because I don't believe that time heals all wounds because I think some things are just always there. But I think time gives you distance and space for reflection and also means that you spend less time thinking about that thing. That's been the case, I guess. <laughs> I didn't think that I was going to get so choked up about it. It was it was five it was five years ago. But there we go. Of course, being five years ago as well, age of 27. Yeah. Is there a thought that if this hadn't happened to you at that point, that 28, 29, 30, it would have got worse and worse towards your 30s? Yeah, I think I think so. I think it was getting worse even then. And I had this horrible thing that if I didn't leave then, I don't think I would have been able to. Like, I don't think that I would have had that thing to be like right I need to go now like I had no idea like I didn't know where I was going to live admittedly I was in a very lucky position in the fact that I did have savings I was in full-time employment and I did have friends I was very lucky in that regard I'm with someone new now and he's wonderful and he very much came from the perspective of like oh you should make up with them and I said no and then one year my mum left me one of her messages <laughs> and I saved it and I played it for him and he was like oh he's never brought it up again 
and I'm so sorry. Um, my food delivery has arrived, so I'm just going to dash <laughs> off, Jay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Talk about time. That's fine. Please go collect. <laughs> Thank you. I won't be long. No problem. Wow. <laughs> There was so much that I wanted to talk about with Natasha. That idea of if I had done something differently, but at the same time how she said that ultimately she was a much happier person now without her parents in her life. I wanted to ask her about the friends she'd lost along the way, what happened and why she needed to cut them off. But whilst Natasha takes care of the shopping that's just arrived, through the magic of editing, I want to take this opportunity to weigh in with Becca Bland and talk about some aspects of Natasha's story and how they fit in generally with people's wider experiences of estrangement. So, first of all, this idea that, in the eyes of her parents, Natasha was never quite fitting in with the, perhaps, rigid ideals that they had for her. This is one thing that impacted on Natasha's experience, is that she wasn't right for what her parents wanted her to be. Yeah. And again, you were talking about that rigidity. Mm. It's not fitting the rigidness of, of the ideals of what a perfect child should be to, to her family. And some people in families have extremely high expectations and ideas about how they want other family members to be and act. And that can be extremely difficult for those family members to live up to. And ultimately, again, it's about accepting people's right to be who they are, their basic individual reality, and that they may not fit these very rigid expectations. The higher we hold expectations for other people, the more likely it is we're going to be disappointed. But I often feel with those people, they hold extremely high expectations for themselves as well. And they often can't meet their own very high expectations, which is why it projects onto other people. Yeah. Or they're in part of a systemic culture where the expectations are set and they're unable to break free or break out of those. So that was the case for Natasha and her experience. There was an unwavering desire from her family to force her to follow through with the rigid norms within their family structure mm. rather than follow her own path that she wanted to take. Yes. And those are extremely hard choices for people to make. And unfortunately, it sounds like Natasha's family are very, very rigid in how they believe a person should act and the expectations that they had for her and what togetherness means in that family is perhaps following those kind of very rigid cultural pathways. Natasha faced a very, very difficult situation there and something that, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for her that she had to choose the path on her own to be able to pursue her own personal happiness. And there is something about the collective culture versus the individualistic culture too. In my experience of different types of families, sometimes people's individual happiness is not paramount. It doesn't matter as much. It's about the collective family happiness and you fitting into the ideals, the expectations and the rigid kind of structures is about the collective happiness. And that's what's seen to be paramount. And there's some tensions there, obviously living in a culture where I think here in the UK, people's individual happiness is much more prioritised. 
welcome back. Hello. <laughs> welcome back. Tell me you've put all of your, your furs and stuff away, haven't you? Yes. Yes. My, my partner would be very upset if um, I had not. <laughs> Are you good to continue? Yes. Natasha, there is so much of that that I would love to unpack. I don't know whether we, we mentioned which country your parents are from. No. So my family is from Mauritius. So that means they were brought up Hindu. Oh, do you, do you celebrate Diwali? Yeah, so that's really interesting. I have never properly celebrated Diwali. When I was growing up, my parents wanted to assimilate to the native culture of England, as it were. So they just tamped down on any of that stuff. And then the older I got, the more my parents would get annoyed with me because I didn't understand all of the different religious festivals. And the older I got, my parents would start using weird religious things. Like, so I went to the gym on a Saturday morning and my dad used to say, oh, it's against our religion for you to wash your hair on a Saturday as a way to dissuade me from going to the gym. And it was just weird things like that. And then obviously really traditional things like, oh, you can't go to the temple because you're on your period, so you're unclean and stuff like that. So my experience of religion in that sense has actually been really negative and then I remember I was in a job and I remember there was another girl she was Indian and she came to work and she was wearing like a really nice kameez and she came over with some cakes and stuff and she's like oh happy Navrati and I was like I don't know what that is <laughs> like I have no idea what that is it's like another slice of an identity that I don't have and my experience of it has been really negative so that part of my identity and that part of my culture I feel very disconnected from I've made my peace of that because I think if I wanted to find out that stuff I could because we live in an incredibly interconnected world and I love to travel so the options are there I think it was more the fact that my parents weaponized it against me it was just another way that I wasn't enough. Like imagine getting angry at someone for not knowing something mm. when you've never given them the tools to try and understand it. It's very strange. From the outside looking in, that really does sound, as you say, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now that you're no longer talking to or living with your parents. Yeah. Is that something that you might potentially want to explore more? despite that attachment to it? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. My answer is no. I would say that religion-wise, I'm agnostic and I see religion, when it's done well, can be a source of community and hope for people when they need it and can be absolutely wonderful. In a lot of cases, it's not those things. And I'm quite happy just trying to be as kind and the best person I can be without that stuff. Are you still going to the gym? Oh, that's <laughs> that's such a good question. I um I actually spent a lot of time thinking about this and I actually think that I was going to the gym as much as I was then because it was the only place where I had control. Like don't get me wrong, I look great, but I don't think that mentally I was in a good place actually when I was doing that. I was eating maybe 1200 calories a day. I was always thinking about food, like, but I don't think it was particularly healthy because in the years leading from that, like especially this year where I've got a new job and I was in a, 
I was in a car accident towards the end of last year like I've had to really rethink about how I move my body and the things that I do and the reasons why I do them and you see it all over social media all the really weird horrible rhetoric around diet culture I think it's really hard actually to sift through that and I think when you're dealing with like a horrible experience it's really easy to bury yourself in something that on the surface seems really really good for you but actually isn't very good for you I got a Fitbit I was like and I was like yeah look at all the steps that I'm doing and look at how low my heart rate is and like I got a bit too into it I think and I realized that it wasn't doing me any good that's why I'm very conscious of trying to fill my time with things that aren't so visibly good but kind of detrimental to me Hmm. (laughs) it sounds like that I mean at the time that was a vice yeah because obviously I was living with my parents right so I wasn't going out very much like I wasn't drinking the only thing I could do was go to the gym Christ (laughs) saying that out loud sounds so ridiculous Is there anything at the moment that is filling that space that the gym once did? Well, so I still exercise, obviously, because it's a big part of my life. And it's something that my current partner and I do. It's a good outlet for me. But I'm, I'm, I'm still looking. During the process where you'd made the move, you'd moved out. Yeah. Yeah. And you said that you'd lost friends during that, yeah. that process. Yeah. Those reactions... Were they, were they again, like, um, I, I can't understand why you're, why you're choosing to just completely sever? Yep. Yeah, that, that was it. Like, I reached out to be like, please, can you help me just move my stuff? Please, could I stay with you for a few days? I was like, I'll pay rent. And the answer was no, I'm really busy, can't help you. No, we don't have space. No, I can't support you doing this terrible thing. You have no idea what you're doing to your family. This is so selfish of you. Can't you think of anyone but yourself in this situation? I'm a parent myself and this would hurt me so much. So how can you do this? Yeah, all of those sorts of responses. It sounds like a lot of the conversations you've had are people attempting to put themselves into your situation. (laughs) yeah and I think people that have that idealized family or that aspiration to have that idealized family what I've done is incredibly taboo incredibly wrong and awful it's why I don't share it with everyone like not really because people judge you for it like there's a lot of stigma attached to it and then when it gets to like specific days of the year or periods of the year talking about it is just the absolute worst one of those periods like for many people we've spoken to across the series is christmas well coming up to christmas jay so uh this is this is probably for me I think it's Christmas, followed by Mother's Day. Oh, the absolute worst. Yeah, so what we are releasing on Christmas Eve 
is a collection of people's responses to Christmas and the period in general and advice about dealing with the festive season. Expect that episode to be arriving on Christmas Eve. And if you haven't already, do subscribe to the standalone podcast so that you're notified when a new episode arrives. Anyway, back to Natasha. The thing about making this series of podcasts is that you find yourself, at least I found myself, relating to different people in different ways. Even the loosest connections. So Natasha was 27 when she cut contact with her parents. I'm 27 now at the time of recording. And then the next thing that we talk about, Natasha's an only child. Again, this struck a chord with me as I myself grew up in a single-parent household without brothers or sisters. And although I've not experienced family estrangement myself, I found myself really connecting with, with where she was coming from. Part of me wishes they were still part of my life because I'm, I'm an only child. Like I don't have any brothers or sisters and I'm not especially close to family on either side of my mum or dad's family. For all intents and purposes, like, I am alone. Most days I'm fine. Like I'm absolutely fine. Like for anyone who is an only child, like I think you grow up knowing that you're always alone and you become very comfortable with that. Like even, <laughs> even at work, one of the lines on my appraisal things, very happy to work on her own. And it's 100% true. But I think having people to share certain things with people who just understand how important they are to you and sharing that stuff with people is incredibly precious. And when you cut yourself off from people, regardless of the reasons, it's very difficult to find that again. And then that's when being alone devolves into loneliness and other dark thoughts. And then you start start blaming yourself for things that aren't your fault, but you do it anyway. I think I will always blame myself a little bit. I think when people can be like, oh yeah, me and my brother are doing this or me and my sister are going to do this. I'm like, wow, what's that like? (laughs) I'll never know, obviously. But um, yeah, I'm always like, wow, that must be amazing. Hmm. You said you've moved to a new town at the moment. Yes. There's not going to be that chance that you're in the the city centre and you see somebody that you didn't want to see. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's absolutely brilliant I can walk through this town and I won't know anyone and there won't be history attached to different places like I won't think oh I was there when I was four or I was made to wait outside that shop for like an hour because my mum didn't want to take me in for like 40 minutes you know like those memories aren't here and that's really really nice and one of the things that I've learned because I've had to move around a lot in the last few years is that home isn't a place it really is like a a state of being like where you're somewhere and you just feel safe and happy because people always say home is like where your heart is or home is where your family is and clearly that's not the case for me and I've had to start over again like quite a few times now and I've had to do it on my own or this time I'm lucky because I have my partner with me. So this latest time when you moved with your partner. Yes. Was this moving away part of your thinking? 
do you know what it was really hard because I was actually really sad and scared and excited doing anything new is you know always really exciting but um but it was also really scary because I'd lived in that place for pretty much my whole life like I'd gone away and come back and I kept going away and coming back but I'd lived there my whole life so what I did was because I knew that I didn't want to go back there I actually called up my dad and said please can I come to get the rest of my things because I'm moving and my dad was like yeah yeah it's fine it's fine and then what was the the hardest thing was putting in the caveat that could my mum not be there because I think had that been the case it would have just gone completely pear-shaped it's the most politest word I can use on here and um to his credit my dad did respect that and she wasn't there I went in and picked up my stuff and I saw my dad and it was the first time I'd seen him since so at that point it was four four years because this was last year so I hadn't seen my dad for four years and I think the worst thing was is that he didn't look well and I picked up the rest of my stuff and the likelihood of me going back there is fairly slim actually I haven't spoken or messaged my dad since to to his credit my my dad my dad still sends me messages at Christmas and on my birthday but because of my mum I don't want to send him my address or anything like that because my mum would just like hair up here and call the police or something and say I've been kidnapped or something it's yeah, it's, it's tough it's re- it's really tough because at the end of the day in their own way they love me but I also know that they love other things more and while I get the impression that my dad would love to have me around I also know that that comes with strings like it comes with a cost it's not oh we could do this thing and we'd ease into having a relationship again it it wouldn't be like you know the Gilmore girls they would have to be in my life again making decisions my therapist put it really well because I that I had spent my whole life up until that point make cutting off pieces of myself to fit in to what they wanted and what other people wanted to the point where I didn't even know who I was anymore and that was the worst thing and that was the scariest thing and my therapist sat me she made me sit down and she said because I talked about like missed opportunities and stuff and she said well why didn't you go for them and I remember saying oh yeah because my parents wouldn't want me to my parents wouldn't, wouldn't approve of me doing it and realizing that and recognizing that so every time I think oh maybe I should do something I I think of that because that was my whole life and um and that's really hard to realize that my life has been so curtailed by my fear of what they would think about what I what I was doing that I didn't do it like I wanted to do Camp America when I was at uni and my parents were like no girls like you don't do that and America's really unsafe and and all that sort of thing and and yeah I mean you you were talking about cutting off parts of yourself and and diminishing your own character but people are saying now your friends how how happier you are how kinder you appear yeah yeah funny isn't it (laughs) and yet 
there are some people that be like, no, you should go back and talk to your family. <laughs> do do they ever ask you whether whether you considered connecting solely with your dad? Yeah, like I have a I have a couple of friends that have asked, and I'd be completely lying if I said that I hadn't thought about it myself. Like my partner and I are doing a civil partnership next year so it's like marriage but without the religion thing and they've now made it for heterosexual couples so that's great and one of my thoughts was do I tell my dad can you imagine that this wonderful thing has happened which I'm still getting my head around because still still on the fence about this sort of thing so still working through that and I don't know if I can share it with him like I don't know because I don't know what it would mean would he want to come? Would I want him to come? Would he tell my mum? Would they both want to come? Like, do you know what I mean? There are too many questions. Like, it's not just a clear cut, I will share good news and they will be happy for me and that will be it. Like, that, it's not, it's not that clear cut. Like, what is it like to have a relationship with someone and have it be that clear cut? Like, I wish I knew what that was like. <laughs> if people think it's that clear cut, they either, they're looking at it from an idealised perspective or they're just so fortunate. Yes. <laughs> so I'm thrilled for yeah. you. That's fantastic. When is when is this happening? Oh, <laughs> next year. Very low key. I've not ever been one for big ceremonial type things. Like we even had a whole chat about if we should get rings or not. And we're trying to get relatively cheap, but still durable, everyday rings mm. and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I think we're always makes me laugh is that a lot of people some people think that I'm really well adjusted and that you know I've got it I've got it sorted and I've and I've got it together and I haven't (laughs) not not even a little bit I have to say oh and what always gets me always always gets me whenever whenever I talk about this stuff some people they they look at me with this look I can never decide if it's pity or if they're going for understanding and they look at me and they say oh you're so brave and 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 I just I'm like I I just want to punch them Mm -hmm. I'm like it's not it's not brave I made a decision to do something and I actually think the women that do end up staying and doing what they need to do for their family because they have no other choice and they don't have the luxury that I did of having savings and and that sort of thing like they're the brave ones because they stick it out like they bury certain things so far down just to please their families like they're they're the brave ones so yeah if anyone's listening and they want to be an ally as it were please don't go around to people and say oh you're so brave because that's not that doesn't help me I feel like that helps them better because they feel like they're saying something that they think we want to hear the most thoughtful people in my life what they say to me they say are you okay um they say do you is it are you okay coming to this big family event or is it going to be a bit too painful for you do you know what I mean like they they come at it from like a scenario based thoughtful perspective because they're genuinely thinking about you based on the things that you've just told them and that's what I appreciate or going back to what we said at the beginning when people just listen and they give you a hug or they buy you a cup of tea 
and or something and they say I don't understand but I respect the decision that you made and we're, we're still friends and you're you're still the same person to me but that's very rare like that's really really rare <laughs> I think so many people in our community really hate being called brave I think it's something that doesn't strike a chord with people because maybe they feel that they didn't have a choice and maybe they don't feel brave inside because they do feel like they're suffering it's difficult they aren't the warrior that people tend to assume they are I think that bravery it's brave to face the world on your own unlinked to a family network however it can be very hard to be told that you're a brave person if that's not how you feel inside that day or in general and also if you feel you've been thrust out there, that it's not something that you actually necessarily chose and not something that you ever wanted. We often associate bravery with aspects of action that people go and choose to do, that they go and climb a huge mountain. It's a choice. It's something that people have find a calling towards. Whereas when people are thrust into a situation where they didn't have the means perhaps to cope and they had to make an incredibly difficult choice... It can be very hard to feel like that's a brave choice. I think it's more about how did I cope? (laughs) And people might not feel that way inside. People tell me that I'm brave all the time. And I think that it's something that at times in my life, I haven't personally been able to internalize and something that I haven't been able to feel identified with. But as I've grown and as I've done more therapy and as I've actually done more yoga, I have been able to kind of celebrate that part of me that has been able to face life on my own, that has been able to go out there and say, in spite of this incredibly difficult thing that's happened, in spite of the trauma, I'm still going to try and I'm still going to put my heart out there. I'm still going to try and trust and I'm still going to try and live as part of this society because at times it has been very, very, very tempting to give up. (laughs) So I think it it can be a real journey with that word, if I'm honest. Also, people have this idea in their head of what someone should look like. So if you say to someone, oh, you've got this person and she is estranged from her family because she escaped or ran away from an arranged marriage, like the image in your head doesn't always match up to me. And people really struggle with that as well, like really struggle. What do you mean by not match up? Sorry. Because it goes back to what I said, like when I tell people, they're like, oh, but you you seem so well adjusted to have gone through something like that. And I'm right. like, what does that even mean? Like, what, what does that mean? Or some people, they see a person of colour and assume that they're oppressed in some way. So it means that they didn't have access to certain education or certain opportunities and that sort of thing because of the colour of their skin, which... I mean, to a certain extent, it's true. Like, I was definitely discouraged from doing certain things at school for whatever reason. But I've still managed to do certain things. And I see see it in interviews and stuff. Not so much now, but, like, when I was younger, like, I'd go into interviews. And I remember one guy in an interview said to me, he was like, well, given your... um, you know, you've got a really interesting CV. And I was like, beg your pardon? (laughs) Wow. Wow, Natasha. Yeah. (laughs) I've just been given a set of circumstances and chances and opportunities. And 
I've just tried to do the right thing and sometimes I've done completely the wrong thing like sometimes I've completely messed up and done completely the wrong thing and sometimes I've done the right thing the problem is you never know if it's the wrong thing or the right thing until after you've done it right I mean (laughs) will you ever know no (laughs) (laughs) in some cases no I don't think so (laughs) with the way this series of podcasts has been produced we're mostly hearing people's stories and journeys in full However, there are times when we are grouping together parts of conversations that have similarities or overlap to find connections between them. So expect to be hearing more of Natasha's voice later, including in Aisha's episode, when we focus some of the conversation on South Asian families and cultural differences. Oh my goodness. I mean, you are the first person that I've had the pleasure of recording with at the moment. Uh Thank you. And have a lovely evening and have a lovely weekend. And thank you so much for your time. What are you up to this weekend? What am I up to? Oh, meeting up with my old team for tea and cake. And then I've got a friend visiting me. Also, this is this is one of the friends that has known me for about 10 years. So she's known me before and after. So while I was at university and also now. That's incredible. So thank you genuinely once again. It's been so nice speaking to you. Oh, thanks, Jay. You too. You you made what could have been quite a horrible thing into a less horrible thing. So thank you very much. Bless you. (laughs) Right. um, I'm going to say goodbye. And yeah, I look forward to the finished product. Natasha, so do I. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, Jay. Bye, bye, bye. Bye. Standalone is a really small charity and I started the charity seven years ago and have built it up to what it is now, which is supporting people in six different locations and also running a national campaign for students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process. We've done a huge amount in such a small time. What we really need to ensure that we are around in the long term and that we can scale properly is more donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time on TV, on billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really huge campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, we can't afford those kind of campaigns. So we're asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. And if you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what we can do for you. If you go to our Just Giving site, which is www.justgiving.com slash standalone, then you can make a donation, a one-off donation, and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to help people with this niche issue, and it means a lot to me as a founder to see other people supporting the charity. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but we really need everyone to contribute to make sure that this support can scale and grow and reach as many people as possible. So this Christmas, please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving us a one-off Christmas present donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you. Thank you for joining us to hear Natasha's journey. We are keen to hear how you feel about the Standalone podcast and any thoughts you have for us can help us with future recordings. 
do get in touch with us via the Standalone UK Twitter account. That's at UK Stand Alone. The next episode of the podcast will focus on a woman called Grace, whose eldest daughter disconnected from her nine years ago, which left Grace both questioning herself as a mother and also unable to see her grandchildren. You never get over it. You never, ever heal. I think, like death, you probably learn to live with it. And I guess I'm learning to live with it. Although the difference between death and estrangement, I think, is that they are out there. They are there. They are living. The only saving grace in my drowning, and I can only call it that because it felt like I was drowning, because all I did was try and relive every single second and moment and go through photograph albums, looking at pictures of whether she was happy then or, you know what I mean? I, everything was that my other children seemed close, wanted me to have a relationship with them, were loving towards me. And I was allowed to see my other grandchildren very, very regularly and look after them. So that was a comfort. But at the end of the day, I doubt if I'll ever see my daughter or my grandchildren again. I'm not getting any younger, and it's a very, very painful thing to come to terms with. And I don't really know how you do. I think the word I use now is acceptance. If you are feeling lower than normal or need immediate support with your well-being at this time of year, please call Samaritans for free on 116-123 or make an emergency appointment with your GP. Standalone UK are such a small charity and so they cannot give out individual advice. If you want to talk about the podcast, head online and go to their Twitter page at UK Standalone to join in the discussion. Remember that Standalone has lots of advice on their website as part of their guides. The Standalone podcast was produced by me, Jay Sykes, for Becca Bland of Standalone UK.